Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. Hi, I'm Ryan Pack, and this is Soundtrack Your Life. We'd like to thank you for listening, whether this is your first episode or if you've been listening from the beginning. You can follow us on Instagram at SoundtrackCast and on Twitter at Soundtrack underscore your. You can also support the podcast by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash SoundtrackCast. So coming all the way from the birthplace of Prince, the Coen brothers, and Rachel Lee Cook, we have the Vern from Cinema Recall joining us today. So welcome to Soundtrack Your Life. Uh, hi, Ryan. I had no idea that Rachel Lee Cook was born in Minnesota. Yeah, I just found that out yet uh, while doing research for the film. That is quite epic, actually. I had no idea. Uh, I know that I was at a convention not too long ago, the Rhode Island Comic Con convention, and she was one of the guests that were going to be there. Uh, but she was doing a whole thing about uh, she's all that. And I was so excited to have her there. I was going to bring along my Josie LP and my Josie DVDs to have her sign it. But then at the last minute, she canceled out. So I was like, oh. So I'm hoping that maybe she'll come out to a convention here in Minnesota so I can actually go say hi. Yeah, maybe. I don't know if she still lives there, but. No, I, that's probably true. Uh, it's like I want to find her. And I guess Winona Ryder was born in Minnesota. Winona Ryder was born in like the same town that I was born in. And I would have been like, did we ever hang out? Did you know me when I was like a little baby? We must have known each other then, all right? So, <laughs> therefore, uh, I'm in your circle, right? We can totally hang out and things, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, so today we're going to talk about the 2001 Harry Elfont and Deborah Kaplan-directed film, Josie and the Pussycats. Yes. So, why are we talking about Josie and the Pussycats today? Because it's one of the greatest, mo- <laughs> the greatest movies ever made. In 2001, apparently critics and Moviegoers didn't think so. That's true. It was a movie that had to take its time to be seen as great. Because here's the issue, Ryan. You have a movie that is a satire of popular music. So this movie was sort of marketed towards the same young girls who enjoyed the Backstreet Boys and Insane Britney Spears at the time. But... It was sort of making fun and late of those artists and musicians. And so, therefore, I'm sure a lot of people who saw it just didn't get the joke because it's taking stabs at bands and music that young girls actually really like. And the marketing for the movie didn't really sell that this was going to be a, a satire movie. It just mainly sold it on the fact that it was about these uh, Midwestern girls in a band and they get signed on. And if you watch the TV spots and a lot of the trailers, they made emphasis on the romance between Josie and Alan M's character. And so when audiences watched it, they didn't see much of the satire. Plus, a lot of people got really irritated with all the uh, sponsorships in the movie, all the corporate logos everywhere. So people just thought that this movie 
was buying into corporate sponsorships. But what they don't realize is that none of the corporate sponsorship spots were paid for. It was all just there to make a mockery about consumerism and how it's been built up too much. Yeah, and I think in 2001, there weren't a lot of movies that had this much like meta commentary within the movie. Yeah, very much so. You got to keep in mind, too, this is like way before Deadpool and other things where they keep having references. Now it's like everywhere uh, in movies today, especially in a lot of the horror sequels, like in Scream and the new Tessa Chainsaw Massacre that came out. Uh, a lot of movies are just being very meta referential of their material. But I think Josie's one of the first ones to actually do it. Yeah, so I'm one of the people that skipped the movie in 2001 because I thought it was just about this, you know, pop punk band of girls, and it, you know, and I remember the Hanna Bar, the Hanna Barbera cartoons. Mm-hmm. So I was just kind of turned off because you know they were just taking a cartoon from the 60s and trying to turn it into a movie. But I was curious about the film because um, I recently read an interview with Adam Duritz of. Counting Crows, and he was talking about how he wrote a bunch of songs for the movie. And then I saw that you had the record on vinyl, yes. the soundtrack on vinyl. So I was like, I think it's, you know, I think the stars are aligning for me to dive into this movie. And here's a weird thing, too. When the movie was first released, I think that the people who are in charge of marketing should have concentrated more on the songs and less on the movie at starts. Because during the early 2000s, MTV was still playing music videos. And it would have been a smart idea for them to release some of the tracks of this band and sell it as a real band. And just after the end of each you know, music video, have the tagline, Joseph and the Pussycats, new LP, coming to the stores on the day the movie was released. And just really kind of build up the songs because the album in the early 2000s did much better than the movie did. Uh, I think the actual album was certified platinum. And while the movie kind of like bombed with crits and audiences, uh, a lot of people really enjoyed that soundtrack and that did even better. So in my mind, the people who are in charge of the movie should have concentrated more on that element than the movie, if that made sense. Yeah, I agree. And MTV is all over the movie as well. So Very I'm, much so. So I'm well, surprised yeah. we didn't do more cross-promotion. Yeah, especially, too, with the whole sequence of both uh, Melody and Val at the TRL with Carson Daly, which was so weird to watch nowadays because I remember the whole tour request live and Carson Daly being everywhere. And at the time, uh, both him and Tara Reid were dating at the moment. And I don't know if you caught it too, but there's like uh, near the end of that scene, uh, Tara Reid holds up a cardboard cutout of Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. And said, I should be dating you instead. Uh, yeah, but it's just so <sighs> bizarre and weird that you did not see Joseph and the Pussycats on Total Request Live, which would have been a nice little promotional tool. And even if they are lip syncing their songs, I mean, shout out to Kay Haley from the band Lairs to Cleo for doing the background vocals, you still could have had the band had a pre-recorded track 
and play Total Request Live, really just sell the emphasis of that band. Not only uh, Joseph and the Pussycats, but DeJore as well. You could totally just sell DeJore singles and have people build up the name of DeJore and at the end of each DeJore music video, be like, all right, check out DeJore's new album on the same day that Joseph and the Pussycats was released. Yeah, like the marketing didn't have anything with DeJore in it. So until I saw the movie, I was like, oh, wow, there's a boy band in this. Yeah, and that's kind of, I'm pretty sure that audiences back to the time when they watched that movie and you have all the Fnatic fans for DeJore and it's clearly making fun of that demographic. Uh, I'm sure a lot of young girls, when they saw the movie, are going to feel like, well, this movie is making fun of me. And the stuff that I like, so F this, I don't really want to watch this anymore. And I think it was directed more towards uh, the consumerism that pop music has, uh, especially when it comes to the whole subliminal messages that Parker Posey's character is talking about. Uh, that part right there was great. Um, but I guess... What do you do with a movie like that, too? You want to try to like sell it as a PG-13 movie. You want to sell it to kids and teens. Um, but it felt like a lot of the subject matter was meant for a more older crowd. Like I find a lot of people who are like older appreciated this movie more than the younger, younger generation. Yeah. Um, so a movie that I think it's kind of similar to, even though it doesn't seem like it at first glance, is Airheads. Okay. Like, they're both movies that kind of take shots at the music industry, and yeah. I think both of them were not very well received when they first came out. But as time has gone on, people have been like, oh, yeah, the, they're not cynical movies. This is just how the music industry really is. Guys, I, I haven't thought about Airheads in a long time, but that is a very, very fun, good movie. It does take pop shots at the metal industry, kind of the same way that This is Spinal Tap did as well. And you can definitely have like a good triple feature with Airheads, uh, this is Spinal Tap and Joseph and the Pussycats uh, to see all those uh, satirical edges that happen throughout them. That's perfect. I actually enjoy this movie a lot more than I thought I would. I'm, and, I'm glad. But I, I found it funny with Parker Posey um, when she first shows up because they kind of hide her a little bit to make it kind of like a big reveal, kind of like Dr. Claw from, from like Inspector Gadget. Um, but I remember going, oh, she's in this? Man, this is a very different from this is a very different movie than like, you know, the Christopher Guest films that she's always in. And then Eugene Levy immediately shows up right after that. Oh, I thought that was great right there too. His whole thing where it comes on screen, like uh in popular rock music, or as kids call it today, rock music and explain the whole thing about subliminal messages and how we didn't get kids to chase a new trend. And I love the whole underground facility that they're at and how they have to make up new slain words and new fashions. And I love the way, too, that fashion keeps changing. There's like a group of girls that visit a uh, record store. And while Alan M's character is playing a CD, the three girls are like, oh, I love this new song. If I don't buy it, everyone's going to hate me. And everyone's like, you know what? I need new orange shoes. These orange shoes are so much better than stupid pink shoes. Yeah, guys, orange is the new pink. Um, but that seems to be the way, too, how trends keep happening and changing all the time. Uh, I remember when pods were a big trend. And then uh, 
that those uh, Tomachi pets were a big trend. And it seems like every five years or so, a new trend happens. And you're thinking, how the hell does this new trend happen to be? And I like the whole element, the angle of using subliminal messages. Even though it's probably not subliminal messages, I thought that was just kind of like a fun little twist and turn. Because it seems like these are a lot of dumb trends that people are using now. Uh, I'm thinking now just recently Pokemon Go being a big trend. And now, like, was that one thing, Wordle? Is yeah, a big trend a big now thing. that people are playing. So it's just kind of funny how different games and products, not even to mention just the music, because in the early 2000s, when Backstreet Boys and Insane and all that pop music was really big, uh, I wasn't really into it. Um, I think my pop sensibilities came up to a point at the Spice Girls. Like when Spice Girls first came out, I was like, oh, I don't like this. But secretly, I was listening to it, and I loved it. Uh, just fun whole element of the whole subliminal messages to be just kind of fun. Yeah. And man, those du jour songs are like pitch perfect, you know, late 90s, early 2000s boy bands. Oh, like, God, You can yes. play those in between an NSYNC and Backstreet Boys song, and you wouldn't know it's a joke. I, that's, that's, I love everything's just played straight. And bitch it out to uh, like Brecken Meyer and Seth Green and Donald Faison in that group. And I know that Donald Faison and uh, Brecken Meyer were they in the uh, Derry, sorry, Harry Elfont and Deborah Kaplan's Can't Hardly Wait? Because I think they might have been. I believe so. And actually, Deborah Kaplan and Brecken Meyer were married in 2001. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, very cool. All right. I didn't know that. Well, mark on, man. Yeah. It's really kind of weird because both those directors, Harry Elephant and Deborah Kaplan, you know, they had a really big hit with Can't Hardly Wait. Right. And then they got the money. And I found it great that they wanted to adapt this old 60s cartoon about this rock band. And if you ever watch old episodes of Joyce and the Pussycats, it's almost like a Scooby Doo environment where the band goes to a place to play a show but then uh the town has some issues going on and so the group has to solve a mystery and there's always the rivalry between josie and uh alexandra and the jealousy that happens with that and then there's just like a band montage and then the the crime is solved within 30 minutes. So when I heard about Joseph Pussycat's movie happening the first time, that is just why I expected is just to have a Scooby-Doo environment and to use the satirical edge by saying that, hey, um, have it's kind of bold for a movie to say to kids, hey, you know what? Think for yourselves. You know, you don't have to like what everyone tells you to like. You can like your own thing. So I thought it was kind of a bold thing. Yeah, and they kind of hide it in this kind of sugary, very bright movie. So it's very subversive. Speaking of which, too, Ryan, uh, the cinematographer is uh, Matthew Lipitek, who I've known from a lot of Darren Aronofsky films. I mean, he basically shot a lot of Aronofsky films. And right before he made Joseph and the Pussycats, he would shoot Requiem for a Dream. Oh, that's crazy. And those two movies are couldn't be any more different look-wise, uh, but at the same time, you can kind of see a lot of those same elements, the saturated colors and the the bright 
is the bright lights and everything like that too. I thought was very, very cool. Yeah, you're right. He went from shooting Aronofsky's Pie and Requiem for a Dream yeah. to Josie and the Pussycats, and now he's doing Marvel movies. Yeah. Oh, so hey, good, good on him, man. Nominated for uh, cinematography for a bunch of awards for A Star is Born. That's right. Yeah. And if you look at Star is Born and the look of Josie and the Pussycats, you can see some similarities as well, especially kind of at the beginning of the movie when things are bright. Uh, when Lady Gaga gets on stage for the first time, you can see some similar attributes for that. Oh. Uh, but I want to ask you, Ryan, uh, since you know we are kind of discussing about the soundtrack of Joseph Pussycats, did you have like a favorite song from the soundtrack? So I do have a favorite song from the soundtrack. And so recently we just did an episode of on um, That Thing You Do. Oh, and a great that, movie. The yeah. Own Eaters. The Own Eaters. <laughs> the winners. <laughs> and so the big hit from them is That Thing You Do, and it's written by Adam Schlesinger, who probably is best known as being from Founds of Wayne. Yep. And so when I saw that we were doing this um, soundtrack, I was looking through all the different people who wrote songs for it, and there are a ton. Mm-hmm. And when I was going through the movie, I heard a song and I was like, this sounds like it was written by Adam Schlesinger. And that's, and I was right. And that's pretend to be nice. Oh yeah. Great jam. Yeah. It's very power pop, a little bit less punk pop than some of the other songs on the soundtrack, but it kind of has a little bit of that thing you do sort of like throwback pop sound. Oh, especially with the, you know, during the kind of the, Break it through that ooey 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 ooey. Yeah, that the whole girl's doing that and the guitar parts. Yeah, uh, starts off very bold with the lyrics. Yeah, I absolutely love that jam. See, I think when it comes to the songs they should been promoting, uh, pretend to be nice and three small words, and also spin around as well. Those are like the three songs I would have released as singles. Um, my favorite. It's still going to be three small words just because the way those drums kick in and that guitar lick. I absolutely just love that jam. Uh, even the way the lyrics begin too, where Joe's is saying, I'm a punk rock, I'm a punk rock prom queen. Right. Was just very, just kind of like bold and in your face. And it's to tell you that, hey, uh, yeah, we're going to be a group of hard rock women. And, and we're not being afraid to say any of that stuff right there. And I just found that to be absolutely great. Yeah, and that was co-written by Dave Gibbs of the Gigolo Wants. And I guess he's best friends with Adam Duritz from Counting Crows, and that's kind of how they got brought into the project. And Gibbs actually also wrote songs for That Thing You Do. Oh, no, oh he did? Okay. Yeah, because I saw that uh, David Gibbs and Adam Duritz wrote Spit Around, and when I listen to that song spin around, I'm thinking, okay, I can see the Counting Crows elements in that one. Um, yeah. But she also had you know, collaborations from uh, Jane Whedlin of the Go-Go's and um, uh, Biff Natiad as well. And some of these names I don't recognize too, like Anna Warnocker, who wrote I Wish You or Well. Anna Warnocker, yeah. She's... 
She was in a band called That Dog in the '90s with uh, oh the, the Hayden Sisters. I remember the song. I remember the band That Dog. Okay, well that's very cool. So yeah, they put in all these great bands, and plus you have you know producer Babyface producing right, a lot huge of songs on this. Time. Very huge, and uh, Babyface is an R&B singer, and it's kind of cool to see him, you know, do stuff in the vein of uh, the punk pop. And I thought everyone there did great. Um, so yeah, kudos to everyone that's been on that soundtrack. It's just been a fun listen, and I love it too because my vinyl comes with a booklet that talks about the making of the soundtrack and the movie. It has interviews with the writers and directors and with uh, Rachel E. Cook. Um, and apparently the three actors, uh, Tara Reid, Rachel E. Cook, and Rosario Dawson, um, they actually had to learn how to play the instruments. Even though they're going to be pantomiming it, they still had to learn how to play the drums and the guitar and bass to make it look real. And it, it looks legitimate. I gotta say, I... When you see the concert footage of them playing the instruments, it looks like they're actually playing the songs. And I have the idea to give kudos to Rich Lee Cook for allowing those live moments or the music video moments to sound like she could be Kay Hanley. Because a lot of times when you watch a movie and it's a different singer, they don't sound similar to the actors. But I think both Rich Lee Cook and Kay Hanley they had like a good match together. Yeah, I agree. Oh. I agree with that. It does seem like she knows how to play it, even though I think I read an interview where she was surprised she got the lead because she didn't have any musical talent. Yeah. You know, they just went through all the good work there back and forth. And yeah, it just when you read about the making of the movie, the banner there, you're thinking, damn, this actually could have been a real band. If like for some reason, if this movie got to be big and it made money, I can almost imagine that they could actually have Joseph and the Pussycats play live. Even though it would have been pre-recorded, but hey, a lot of things now are pre-recorded. I don't think it would make that much of a difference. If Joseph and the Pussycats were coming to my town, and even though I know they were a fake band, I would still be their front and center to rock all the songs. They did that for Walk Hard? They did? Yeah, John C. Riley actually went on tour for a little bit. Oh, that's fun. Oh, see that oh god, oh, that would be so cool to see. I would still say this right now, Ryan. I still think Josie the Pussycats is one of my favorite rock bands. I, I still have a shirt of the original Josie the Pussycats. And when people ask me who's your favorite rock band, I'm like, Josie the Pussycats. And they're like, they're not real. I'm like, well, that's just your opinion, man. The leaders are great. <laughs> exactly. There, there you go. That's a good point. Or you think about like the gorillas. Yeah, they are the a virtual, fake band. The virtual band, right there. I mean, yeah, I, I, I can totally suspend my disbelief, and I would just totally just want to see that band. Um, now, do you think that there ever could be like a follow-up sequel to this movie? I think they could reboot it. I don't know if they would do a follow-up sequel. Well, here not is, with the same people. Well, no, because I mean, because both Rosier Dawson and Tara Reid and Richley Cook, they you know appeared together for the film's twentieth anniversary, and they had like a little uh, meet 
on Skype or whatnot that show their faces, and they all look still very good. So if there was going to be a sequel, I would like to see the band, after a few years, get back together, and could they still pull in a crowd of the woman being, you know, older now, and the music tape has changed? What would happen with that? Oh, I think that could be interesting. Maybe do like a Josie and the Pussycats reunion tour movie. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that actually. Just something like that moment right there, you know? Oh. Shoot. Have some Eve, have some Alan M sort of character try to book them for Coachella or something. Yeah. Hell yeah. Uh and right now I just picked up uh, a couple of issues because they just released Josie and the Pussycats comics. They have a new comic series. Uh, written by Marguerite Bennett, uh, Cameron Diotto, and Audrey Mock. That is like a whole new tale of Joseph and Pussycats. It's a lot of fun, and I kind of hope if they did do a reboot, to reboot the stuff from the comic book and make it into a series, like an animated series, but a whole brand new one. Because uh, my issue with the 60s TV show, it was fine, but... <laughs> The original series, Ryan, had Josie on just guitar, Melody on drums, and then Val just played the tambourine. And I'm thinking, no, Valerie's playing bass, just having her just playing a tambourine doesn't make much sense. So Yeah. Now that we're spitballing ideas for this movie, I think a documentary on their reunion tour would be a total, oh. totally great movie. Oh, I'm 100% down for that, man. That would be great. Um, so I am kind of curious, Ryan, did you have like a favorite moment of this movie? A moment that you're going, hey, all right, I like this. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think it's it grabs you right away with, you know, backseat lover at the airport. <laughs> yeah. Because I wasn't expecting that. I was, you know, like I had listened to the soundtrack and I was like, oh, there's like some boy band in this movie. And I didn't know they were going to kick it off with DeJour. And then to see them and to see the the cameos, you know, Seth Green and Breckin Meyer and Donald Faison, you know, it's a total nostalgia trip for me. So, oh, very I, much was, so. I was already having a good time, like within like, you know, the first two minutes of the film. And, and I wear too, did people, when they went to see this movie, and it begins with the DeJour. Did people think they just went to the wrong movie and left? Or they're probably like super confused why Seth Green was in a boy band. That's true. <laughs> That's probably true. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I wondered that because it just starts off right away after the opening logos. It goes into DeJour and the Backstreet Lover song. Not Backseat Lover. Or Backdoor back Lover. Uh, yeah, Backdoor Lovers. <laughs> Sorry, Backdoor Lover. <laughs> goes in that song. And I wondered, people at the time thinking, wait, I thought this movie was about a girl band. What are this boy band doing here? Did I go in the wrong movie here? What? And then they left. So I'm not saying that's the reason why, but I'm hoping not. I'm hoping that people have like the patience. Like If you don't see the main character in a movie right away, doesn't mean it's not the movie. Like When you see Robocop, you don't see Robocop for the first like 30 minutes of the movie. He's going to be there. I don't know. Maybe people were not as patient, I guess, in the 2000s. Well, I think, well, with the marketing, it totally makes you realize you're seeing a very different movie than what the marketing was showing. Yeah. 
So it's just so people who are in marketing right there, you, you gotta not treat your crowd as being morons. You gotta like word stuff up better with that. And I think now we're more used to seeing like kind of crazy cameos like this. Mm-hmm. Spoiler, you know, the whole Spider-Man thing. Yes. Like, you know, now people are like looking forward to it or like, oh, that person is really gonna be someone else. You know, like they we've kind of become accustomed to that now i think in 2001 like these random cameos like outside of like horror movies like they didn't exist like to see just like a like here's a boy band with all these people you real that you know like i'm sure people are like what is this like why 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 didn't someone tell me these people were in the movie yeah uh and then just kind of like the ridiculousness of the lyrics as well (laughs) uh Cool little shout out here too. So the vinyl collection I got, it actually has a forty-five single from Dijour. Oh, that's perfect. With both the uh, Backdoor Lover and Dijour around the world, and it's just done like in this little forty-five. It's it's great. Shout out to Mondo Records who have been doing a good job releasing all these old soundtrack albums. To hear that they have a forty-five for, with just the Dijour songs, that's Chef's Kiss. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, that was just like. And it's a really cheap price. I think I spent for the vinyl just like 20 bucks. That's great. That's a steal. It is actually. You have a lot of stuff there. It comes with a beautiful uh, kind of purple vinyl. And then Dijor is like this blue vinyl. And it's pressed. It sounds great. And yeah, I'm just freaking. Yeah, I love it. Uh, so let me give you some some info on some of these songwriters that I think yeah. you'll you'll really enjoy. So Anna Waronker was in That Dog, and That Dog has kind of been in and out. They like, kind of stopped being a band in like the early two thousands. Did they um, come so, out at the same time as like Brook Assault? Yeah, around that time, like they did a lot of touring with like Weezer. Okay, sure. So they like, had like, on, one of their songs was like set at a hot dog, like. Uh, some sort of the there's some hot dogs some of their videos I know that that sounds about right. <laughs> um, so Anna Waronker is now doing a lot of TV score work. Oh, so so she did the music for Shrill, the uh, Hulu show with Ad Bryant from SNL, and now she's doing. I think it's called Yellow Jackets '96 on Showtime. Oh, okay. She's doing the music on that with Craig Wedrin. So she's kind of made a shift into doing, you know, soundtrack work full time. It seems like a lot of musicians musicians from the late nineties are doing that. You look at like Trent Reznor from Nice Nails, uh, doing a lot of scroll work now. Right. Yeah. And Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, yep. obviously. Yep, exactly. Um, and yep. so another writer on the soundtrack, his name is Jason Faulkner. I guess his best he's best known for being in a band called Jellyfish. But I believe it was in 1994 he released an album called in a band called The Grays. Okay. And in The Grays, it was Jason Faulkner, Buddy Judge Dan Carroll, and a guy named John Bryan. So Jason Faulkner was in a band with John Bryan, who we obviously talked about on our episode of Punch Drunk Love on your podcast. Oh, John Bryant, that, that that same composer. Oh, okay. Dots are connected now. Something we say John Bryant, I'm thinking about B R Y A N, but not B R I O N. Oh wow, same guy. Okay. All right. So 
I, I don't know Jellyfish too well, but I, I when I saw the name Jason Faulkner, I was like, he used to play with John Bryan, right? That's funny. I didn't know that. So, you know, and obviously you have your Adam Duritz from Counting Crows and mm-hmm. um, Adam Schlesinger, who has done so much music work, you know, from that thing you do in this film to he wrote, I think, the song from Music and Lyrics that Drew Barrymore in in Hugh Grant movie. Oh, okay. So he wrote the fake song in that movie. Um, he's done a bunch of stuff for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend with Rachel Bloom. I think he even wrote like the Crank Anchors theme song. Like he's just done so much. Oh, gee. And I guess I'm seeing on here too that some of the musicians, I had no idea were part of this. You know, you have Biff Naked, you had Matthew Sweet. Right. Appearing on this as well. And I guess they must have done some guitar work or whatnot, but I'm not quite sure what songs they were in, or maybe they were in a lot of them, because a lot of those guitar licks are really legitimate and they sound great, but I would not be able to tell you who did what song. Yeah. And Matthew Sweet was doing a lot of film stuff at the time too, because he wrote some songs with Mike Myers for the Austin Powers series. Okay. Well, that's the great thing, too, about the soundtrack, Brian, is that you have all these great musicians come in, and they write these really great songs. You mentioned Pretend to Be Nice. Uh, it's got a great chorus, got a nice little, uh, uh, we call it breakdown beat, with the, can't you just pretend to be nice? You should at least pretend to be nice. And everything in my life will be all right. And it goes, oh, it's just, the way the songs are structured, they are just very good. And if you had no idea that this was an, a movie and there were just these songs released, um, I think to the 2000s, you know, with the bands like Green Day and Bleak 182, to actually have an all-girl punk pop band, would just be very cool and also refreshing because these are, you know, young girls in the movie, uh, probably their early 20s, doing these type of great songs. And like I said before, if audiences didn't know at the time that this is part of a movie, I'd imagine these singles would do very well. Like I mentioned before, the album went platinum. And you just have just build up the songs, talk about the music. Because for me, the music is like one of the best things about the movie. I mean, the comedy element is great. Um, I do love the whole sequence when um, Alan Cummings' character is in the record store and he meets a girl who doesn't like the music. And he's like, oh, you're a real free thinker. And he's got, she's got the Susan Banshee shirts on. And she gets taken... That whole notion right there, I thought was great. You mentioned before Eugene Levy, uh, the whole underground lair. I like the fact, too, that the government gets involved. And then uh, later on, after uh, Josie destroys, she destroys the uh, that device that has them control. Oh, I'm blanking my what's that called. She has that big device. And then the government comes in there, and Joseph's like, do you know that they're trying to take over the world with subliminal messages? And the government guy is like, they're what? And uh, 
Parker Posey's character is like, you knew about this from the start, and the government guy goes, sorry, uh, they're coming on to us, and uh, so he's got to take the rap. But don't worry, I found subliminal messages in movies work much more better. And Joe's like a quick caption, Joe's in the Pussy Cats is the greatest movie ever, and then small parentheses, join the army. Right. That right there is probably my favorite thing, because it's using the satire on us as well. And it's based on jokes about that, which I found to be just pitch perfect. Right. And that's why I'm saying, like, you know, in 2001, I think people aren't used to, like, meta-ness on that level yeah. of the movie. So this is a movie that just basically had to take its time to become, you know, a cult favorite. And I, I like that. It definitely is a cult film. Uh, I can imagine. This is not a movie that everyone is going to watch and enjoy uh, but a good amount of people did to the point that, like I said before, they just released the soundtrack on vinyl in 2017. Um, they just finally released the movie on Blu-ray for the 20th anniversary. Um, but none of the special features are in, uh, I guess, 1080p. There's still the regular 720, which is kind of a pain. So I have the movie on DVD. I'm not upgrading to Blu-ray or 4K unless they put out new special features. And I want to have a commentary track. Oh, can I add that my favorite part after the intro is when DuJour shows up at the end, or it's just one of the guys from DuJour. Well, the whole band shows up, but they're all like a cast. Oh, they're in cast. And then one guy is not in a podcast. And you find out that it's not that the plane crashed, they landed it but they landed in the parking lot of a Metallica concert, and that's why they're all injured. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, the guy's not so bad. He's like, and I thank God every day that I knew the words to enter Sandman. Yeah, that's why he survived. <laughs> yep, see? <laughs> oh, that's... So that misdirection of a joke right there, I was like, oh, that's actually really funny. <laughs> yeah. Oh, And the movie, I think, is, you know, very... It's, it's uh, paced very well. Yeah, I don't feel like there's any like wasted scenes in the movie. I wasn't a huge fan of the the love story, but I knew there had to be one anyways. There is, and okay, that those elements do kind of like slow the movie down a little bit, but not enough to make a, a screeching halt where I'm like, ah, oh, this again. All right, let me check my phone. Yeah, I think I think the filmmakers knew that it was going to be the weakest part of the movie, so it's just kind of there to be there, but they don't spend any more time than they need to to have that story in there. Hell yeah. Well, uh, do, would you ever want to go back and kind of rewatch the cartoons show? It's on YouTube. You'd watch episodes here and there. Yeah, I enjoyed the Archies in general. So Sure. You know, I know that was part of that universe, so... Mm-hmm. I I wouldn't mind going back and watching that stuff. They they made another seat. They made another series of the animated series called Josie and the Pussycats in Space. Okay, it was kind of weird. And then I knew that Josie and the Pussycats are in the show Riverdale, but it's a very different band. I haven't seen any of Riverdale. I know it's a very different take on the. Comics. It's very much so. Uh, but yeah, and like they're not they're not the main focus. It's just that when the Kids from Riverdale go to like uh, uh, I guess a bar. They'll have Justin Pussycats there, uh, but they're not a rock band. They are very much you know R and B 
style band in that one. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. And it's, I think it's a, it's, it's mostly is like uh black uh, actors in, in that. Oh, interesting. So definitely do a different take on there. Uh, it's a WB show and I'm just not a big fan a lot of those shows because I'm not the demographic. All right. So, right. And if people like that, you know, if they want to do like a, a show with just those girls, I would, I'd probably watch the movie. They do a little take on the band right there. But Rosario Dawson, Rachel Lee Cook, Tara Reed, those, those are my, my jokes in the Pussycats. That's just great. I love the dynamic. Um, I just kind of wish I would have saw more footage of the band. You know, they're a fake band. I just want to see that. Oh, I don't want to stripe it well, Ryan, but I want to see more of them play together. Yeah, I was hoping that you'd see a little bit more of them playing live, you know, playing some small clubs, but it's more of like them dealing with music industry stuff than actually playing shows. Because the whole movie right there, I mean, they had like one show at a bowling alley. And then right. they were going to play like a crucial set outside of like a shoe store. And then they did the call, cops called on them. And while they're running away, they run into Alan Cummins' character and uh, hit that grid sequence of him holding up the CD case. And then those two guys walking by with that platform or that banner saying best band ever. Yeah. And just shows the Joseph Pussycats in frame. That was just a, a great shot, though. So shout out to Matthew Libertic for putting that together right there. That was absolutely brilliant. And yeah, they did sign like right away, uh, and then they did call into the studios. And in fact, a lot of the Joseph the Pussycat story elements kind of reminds me of uh, Daft Punk's Interstellar Five 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 Five. Is an anime that Daft Punk wrote. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. It so it is still a five 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 five. It's about this alien rock band who gets kidnapped by this record producer, and they are changed and formed to look like humans, and release songs for this records. And the whole point of them doing this is that uh, this evil mogul guy has these gold records from a bunch of musicians, and he needs the gold records to have this device to take over the world. So apparently when you watch it, you find out that Aretha Franklin and Elvis Presley and all these great famous musicians were actually aliens that are being kidnapped by this record producer. But the whole soundtrack is just Daft Punk's Discovery album. So there's no dialogue. It's just the songs from that album, but they made a story out of it. Oh, I'll have to check that out. I love that album. Yeah, it's it's all it's an it's an anime. It's absolutely great, and I know that they released I think three or four songs on MTV, uh, especially with one more time that alien band. That there's a whole story arc with that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to check that out. So I think I think it's on the YouTube and parts, I think. Or if you just tape it in on your interwebs, I think you can watch the whole thing on Vimeo. Okay. So at the beginning of the film where it's like the credits and they're playing three small words and then it shows that they're actually playing the song at the bowling alley at the end. 
it kind of reminded me of how um, Scott Pilgrim versus the World opens up with oh, them playing. Very- Good, good call on that, Ryan. I did not even think about that. Yes, Sex Bomb. <laughs> right, so Sex Bomb plays that song. You get the credits, and then after the credits are over, it shows them finishing the song, and then you it cuts to Knives, and she goes, you know, like that was amazing. Mm-hmm. But in, but in this one, it cuts to them playing a finishing the song at the bowling alley, and like no one's paying attention. And I gotta say, I love the opening credits, how it shows each of the band members. I love that when it shows like the credits of the cast and crew, it's all like taped together. Mm-hmm. I found it to be a very, very cool moment in that. And it kind of shows like, uh, hey, this is Josie. Guitars, it does that free frames for both of them. Uh, even just like a free frame for like Alan M, it says it sets this guy in Riverdale, and he's like this very average-looking guy. Yeah. Or you have uh, Alexander and uh, Alexandra, played by Missy Pyle, and I, I can't believe I just totally forgot about that name. And yeah, just great job all around here. Uh, what did you think about our main villains, uh, Mister Alan Cumming and Parker Posey? Well, I I thought they were great. I mean, they knew to bring the appropriate level of hamminess to these villains. Yes. Right. You can totally tell that they're just really cheesing up for the cameras. And I love it. I love their whole like uh back and forth of who can have the most evil laugh. Yeah. That was great. And I think at during the credits they show some of the bloopers and you know Parker Posey is breaking in the middle of some of her lines because she knows they're just so ridiculous. Uh, uh, and I, I could be wrong about this too, but uh, I don't think that Parker was necessarily a, a fan of the movie. And that could be. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it her best acting job. but Oh, no. I, but still, one of my favorite performances of hers is like this one, Dazed and Confused, uh, Best in Show, and then the House of Yes. Yeah, that would probably be my list. I mean, I'm trying to think if I liked her more in Guffman or uh, Best in Show, but you know, she's oh. great in both of those. It's been a while since I've seen Waiting for Guffman, though, and I need to rewatch that. Yeah, I think I watched it maybe a year ago, and my wife was like, "What? What is this?" <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "I was like, this movie is great." Nice. Yeah, no, and then uh, Alan Cumming, I've only seen him in Eyes Wide Shut. And I know he directed a movie called The Anniversary Party with him and Jennifer Jason Lee, which I believe Parker Posey has a small part in that as well. Um, but I just cannot think of another movie that I thought Alan Cumming. Oh, no, he was, he was, uh, wasn't he Nightcrawler in The X Men? That sounds correct. I I, th- I think he was. Uh, it's been two. I'm looking up his filmography right now. Okay. And I'm just trying to check myself in just a very small part. Yeah, yo, he was. He was Nightcrawler. Yeah, that's right. No. So I, I know I've seen him in a few stuff there. Oh, that's right. He was in Spy Kids. 
He was the main. Yeah, I know he's been in a lot of stuff. He's been in. He's been in a lot, but. Alright. Yeah. He's also in GoldenEye, yep. but I haven't seen that in a long time, so I don't remember exactly what he did in that movie. I thought he played a computer programmer in there. That sounds right. He wasn't like one of the main like three or four characters. No. Right. Oh. And then, you know, I like to mention before we had uh, uh, Missy Pyle as Alexandra, and I'm not too familiar with her filmography until I actually see the movies that she has on here. But oh yeah, that's right. She was. Oh, she's. Oh, that's right. She was in Galaxy Quest, and just my luck. Um, Home Alone Four. You know the the probably the greatest sequel, Home Alone Four. We all love that one. <laughs> <laughs> she was in dodgeball yeah there you go hey the highlight of everyone's career is to be in dodgeball no uh but i like the uh the main our three main cast members and i thought they all worked very well together uh rosero dawson you know before this i think i've only seen her in the movie kids at the time. Mm-hmm. So to go from that feature <laughs> to this one. Yeah, very different movie. Very different movie. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was absolutely great. And this time before Rosario Dawson started to get bigger. Uh, and I believe that for this one, for Joseph the Pussycats, they would have like a lot of cast members pit for this that were not like they, they actually had other people. Put out as cast members for this, and I'm just trying to. Oh yeah, she auditioned against like Lisa L- Left Eye Lopez of TLC, and yeah, I think Beyonce. Exactly, and yeah. I think Beyonce tried out for the role of Val as well. Yeah, it's just very crazy how things happen to be there. Well, I got the names confused here because the editor of Joyce and the Pussycats was Peter Teschner. And the name Teschner reminded me of like Dylan Teschner, who I think edited a bunch of Paul Thomas Anderson movies. So I don't think they're related, but I just saw the name on there. So my bad folks here. I was trying to find facts that were connected to um, some other movies, and that's not the case here. Um, so here's what they said. So about the uh, people who are going to be cast in the movie. And it says, co-director Harry Offbont revealed during the film's 16th anniversary that Beyonce, Aaliyah, and TLC's Left Eye auditioned for the film. Uh, they read Elisa twice, and she really wanted to play the, the role. Um, Alphonse says Beyonce was too shy and quiet, and Aaliyah was more serious and thoughtful, but the film is a comedy. And I guess apparently horror filmmakers Jen Sastra and Sylvia Sastra appear uncredited as extras. And this is where they actually met Catherine Isabel. And that's how they got to make the film as American Mary. So, and apparently, I don't know if you knew about this too, but they actually did make an edited version of this movie for home video. Oh, really? There's The movie's rated PG-13. Uh, but they actually did release on DVD an edited, family-friendly version so, you know, okay, so one of the main things they cut out is at the very beginning of the movie during the opening credits, uh, you see Melody holding a sign saying honk 
if you love pussy cats, but the cats is blocked by trees. Right. Yeah, I remember that. And then she like moves, and then you see it says cats. Yeah. So stuff like that was taken out. I don't remember exactly what else was taken out, but I can imagine that would be kind of a big thing. But it's just it's a small joke, and it's I don't find it anything offensive. I mean, I showed this movie to my niece when she was like ten, and that stuff went over her head. Right. So, do you think you this? Like, what age would you be able to show this to you know your kids? I don't know. I'd say probably like. Around 10, I think that would be fine. Yeah. A lot of stuff they're probably not going to get. Like, I know for a fact, um, when you the time watched it, she did not get any of those turtle elements. I have to show it to her again. Yeah. Like, I think it would just be like a fun, fun music movie. Like, I don't think they would take it as a satire, but I think they would enjoy the music. I think they would enjoy seeing, you know, um, these girls playing instruments. I think they would like that. <laughs> I think they would like to see them, you know. I don't know if they like understand the whole Carson Daly and other Carson Daly sort of thing, but Oh sure. No. But you know, it I think they would just kind of take it at face value of it's like a fun movie about this band of girls. Oh yeah. No. Uh yeah, it's, it's something to stay with the consumer economy tone of the film. From beginning to end, there are approximately 73 companies who have product placement shown from logos to actual items, raging entertainment, electronics, fashion, food, hygiene, and cars. No money was received from any of the product placements in the film. Yeah, I read that, and I don't think that would happen today. I don't think no. that would be possible. You, you basically want to have people want to try to get their triumphants and made money on there right away. So here's the thing too. Rachel Lee Cook and Parker Posey, they appeared in the house of yes, because Rachel Lee Cook plays the younger version of Jackie O and Parker Posey plays the older characters. So they actually did work together before this movie. I found that to be kind of fun. Oh, that's cool. I did not know that. Yeah. Do do. All right. Yeah. That, uh, I've got nothing to, the last thing I have is from um, an interview with Adam Duritz about the soundtrack, and he said that they wrote 10 songs. So him and Dave Gibbs, they wrote 10 songs together in a weekend, and they used three or four of them for the movie. Really? Okay. Oh. I got one more thing of cast and information uh, for the role of Joyce and McCoy. Apparently, Major Gyllenhaal and Zoe Deschanel audition for the role of Josie. I don't know. Zoe maybe, but I'm not quite sure. But Zoe's not really a punk. She's kind of more folky. With That's true. Music, you know. I don't think I would buy that. And maybe Gyllenhaal in 2000s, I think she'd just be a little bit too old. Just slightly. Yeah. I think I think she could do it, but I think Rachel Lee Cook is perfect in this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I love to read. I know people give her a lot of flack for the Sharknado movies and whatnot, but uh, she's a legitimately good actress. And she knows how to play 
the kind of like bumbling blonde character, uh, but do it in a way that's not irritating or grating, if that makes sense. Yeah, she does it with a certain sweetness where you just kind of let it slide. Yeah, she's got this like sweet little innocent thing about her, and you know she loves her kittens and puppies. Uh, the only kind of issue I had with the movie overall was when Josie had the subliminal messages come into her ears. I thought that element could have been written a little bit better. Because you have uh, Alan Trump's character saying that Josie has to listen to um, this remix of one of their songs. And Josie's like, I really want to see you know my friend Alan M because he's got a gig coming up there. And um, Alan Trump's character keeps taking the phone and saying, oh, sorry, uh, he called earlier saying the show got canceled and that he'll call you back. And I thought it was just too easy for her just to take the headphones instead of just calling. They, they I'm not saying they couldn't put those subliminal messages in her head, but I wish they had a better way of doing that. No, that's fair. Like I said, there are certain plot points where, you know, you know, they have to, you know, have her turn on the band or they have to have a love interest. And sure. I feel like it had to be a third act thing. I know that they had to just, there has to be some sort of conflict. And yeah, if it was a little bit more like sinister, how they did it or a little bit more, uh, I yeah, there's like a better strategy. Or or had she have one of the other pussycats unwillingly do something to the other pussycats. Like have Val, because Val is kind of jealous because all the attention. Have her have the studio come up with a way for the other pussycats to unknowingly make uh, um, Josie get brainwashed would be kind of a nice little element to that. right yeah yeah but you know it's small small core small quibble right it's it's a kid's family movie all right folks and there's like elements of satire and comedy of this you can't expect every single plot device to be groundbreaking and i know that there are some nice things to talk about which is absolutely great and wonderful um, I think if I had to sell people anything on this movie is to listen to the soundtrack first and then watch the movie. It's fun and it's smarter than you think it is. <laughs> it's Exactly. But am I wrong on that, Ryan? I said, hey, I heard about this Justin the Pussycats movie. Is it good? I'm like, hear the songs. Hear at least two or three songs from the soundtrack of Justin the Pussycats and then go into the movie. But because I think if you have that background of the music and what this band's about, then going to the movie would just be a much more refreshing and rewarding experience. Yeah, I think it would help to be familiar with the music. Especially, I think if you have to be a fan of that type of genre of music, you know, the pop punk, if you're not into that music, I'm not saying you can't enjoy the movie because there's been movies of music that I'm not much of a fan of, but I turned out to really enjoy the movie. Um, but I think for this one, it kind of sets the tone. Yeah, I think it helps to look forward to where these songs are going to pop up in the film. 100%. Especially du jour. Yeah, so, <laughs> that, so that's probably the first thing to listen to is du jour. <laughs> yeah, you got to listen to du jour. <laughs> 
Oh, Especially uh, du jour around the world because it's not you don't get the whole song like you get Backdoor Lover. I, I love the fact too that on the DVD for Estras they actually have two du jour music videos and only one Joseph and the Pussycats music video. And the du jour ones is just set in that plane. Oh. <laughs> that's it. It's just that's it. And you see uh Wyatt Ellenum's character walking around holding the cell phone and the camera just moves in and out and the camera like kind of slide from like either left to right or it'll go in and out but it doesn't have any cuts oh okay it's just one camera and they looks like they kind of shot everything on like a wide angle lens right but I'm telling you, if they if they released those songs in those early 2000s, and people would kind of build up like, "Hey, who's Ben Tajour? I like the jams." And then you can fool people in thinking that the movie is about Tajour, but it's actually about this other band. Or they could have done a Tajour short film. Oh yes, <laughs> hell yeah. Uh, I'll end with this. Adam Duritz said that they made $9,000 for the movie, but it ended up costing them $20,000 in legal bills. Oh, damn. Oh, that's he was rough. Saying, yeah, he was saying, you know, in Counting Crows, they just have full creative control, so they make the music and send it to the label and tell them they're done. But, you know, they would get producer's notes and they would get... St- they would get notes sent back to them and they'd have to do an edit and then they'd have to send the song back and they'd have to all these have to do all this stuff with lawyers every time they had to do a revision and he ended up saying that they uh, lost more money than they made on the film. Damn. You know, I, I, I gotta say, I appreciate the sacrifice to all the musicians that didn't probably make as enough money as they wanted to. I'm hoping that with the release of the Joseph and the Pussycat soundtrack on vinyl that they were able to recuperate some costs. Yeah, I hope so. He didn't go into the details, but uh, just kind of another sort of connection with that thing you do is the soundtrack was originally released on Playtone Records, which Tom Hanks created to release that thing you do soundtrack. Oh, funny. Oh, that's great. (laughs) I didn't realize that. Thank you, The Vern, for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Ryan. This has been an absolute blast. Uh, I love the soundtrack. Uh, I I enjoy this movie very much. Um, Yeah, I I can't say any more praises about it. I think the cast is great. I think the rating is fun. The music is brilliant. And overall, it's just a fun time. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And if you enjoy The Vern, you can check out Cinema Recall. And how can they find you? Well, you can find me if you go to the interwebs. We are available on Twitter at Cinema underscore Recall. Uh, you go to our website, cinemarecall.net. Uh, we do have stuff available on the YouTubes. And we're available on Instagram as well as Cinema Recall Podcast. Check out our live shows that me and my good friend Ashley host at least twice a month or so and then i try my best to release some other content uh it's gonna be difficult now going forward because i started a new job this week and i'm gonna try my best to do episodes as much as i can very cool and there's an episode that um i did with you on punch trunk love and you can check that out yes please do 
That is actually really a lot of fun. And of course, you can find our podcast on Instagram at SoundtrackCast and on Twitter at Soundtrack underscore your. And uh, if you want to buy us a coffee, you can buy Vern a coffee and you can buy me a coffee um, at buymecoffee.com slash SoundtrackCast. Very cool. Hell yeah. All right. So until next time. There's everyone. Bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, soundtrackyourlife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.